1: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman, and have you ever wondered what it would be like to wake up one day and have forgotten your entire past? You know, no idea where you live, what your profession is, who your relatives are, or even what your name is. In today's story titled, A Life Forgotten, you will learn of one man who suffered such a fate and how he ultimately found out who he really was. So imagine this. You wake up on the side of the road just outside of Craig, which is a small town in northwestern Colorado. Nothing seems familiar to you. You check and your wallet is gone. And suddenly you feel a sharp pain from your badly bruised ribs. And then as you pull your hand away from the wetness of your face, you discover that it's bloodied. Worst of all, a few feet from your body lies a gun. You think to yourself, is it my gun? Could I have shot someone with it? Or even worse, could I have killed someone with it? You try to replay the incident in your mind, but you can't remember even the slightest detail. Such an event did happen to a 24-year-old man in May of 1946. He truly had forgotten his entire past. Shortly after awakening, he saw a car approach, so he did the obvious thing. He hid the gun under his shirt and he tried to hitch a ride. The couple did take a look at his battered face and you know they were suspicious, but they trustingly gave him a lift into town. After cleaning himself up the best that he could, the young man went straight to the police station and he handed over the gun. The officer asked him his name and he suddenly realized that he had absolutely no clue. So he looked down and he saw that he had a badly worn identification bracelet on and from it he could make out a portion of what was left of the engraving. It said Robert Sher. Now think of the possibilities Robert Sher, Robert Sherwood, Robert Sherborne. Well, he opted for Robert Sherman, although he had no inkling as to whether that was his real name or not. And he expected to be arrested right there on the spot, but he wasn't. Instead, the newly named Robert Sherman walked out of that police station and right into his new life. At first, he assumed that his memory loss would be short-lived, and he didn't worry about it very much. But without a penny to his newly coined name, he needed to obtain work, so he got a job loading box cars. But he ultimately decided this was not for him, and he decided to move on. Without any memory of his past, he fabricated one over time. He became Robert, or Bob Sherman, an ex-Marine from Texas who had been a student at prestigious boys' schools in both New York and Omaha. He then worked at a casino in Reno, Nevada, and as a railroad detective in California. He even managed to secure a job as a deputy sheriff in Nevada. But Bob Sherman was a man constantly haunted by his past. Just who was he, and what was the deal with that gun? When he was fingerprinted while working at an aluminum plant, he expected the police to arrest him at any moment. When the results of the fingerprint search came back as a match, he was shocked to find out the name of the man associated with them. It was Robert Sherman. Yeah, he was identified as the man that he was pretending to be. So desperate was he to determine his true identity that he even went as far as enrolling himself in some FBI training courses and that was so he could have his fingerprints checked against their records. Again, once again, they pointed right back at Robert Sherman. Then, one day while he was working as a juvenile counselor in Sacramento, California, his supervisor mentioned that there was a problem with his school transcripts and they needed to be straightened out right away. Well, that was the last they ever saw of Bob Sherman, he hightailed it out of there, and he ultimately set up his own business in Los Angeles as a deep-sea diver. As the years passed, he did fall in love with several women you know, that he wanted to marry, but he always feared that his past would someday rise up and destroy both of their lives. You know, Maybe he had a wife out there, maybe some children, who knows? He was fearful of the past. Each time, Bob just moved on. And then one day, about 20 years after the loss of his memory, he just plain lost it. While driving outside of Los Angeles, the stress of the unknown finally got the better of him and he was forced to pull a car to the side of the road. Police found him there freaking out, so they took him to stay with a couple of his friends for some much-needed rest. It was there, while sitting on their patio one evening, that he suddenly had a moment of clarity. Quote, I suddenly thought, Albany, New York, that's where I'm from. My name is Robert Sheridan. Johnny and Dickie are my brothers. Lillian and Marjorie are my sisters. One would think that this would be incredibly welcome news, but as bits of his memory slowly returned, he was afflicted with a sense of guilt, you know, for the pain that he must have caused his family. And to make matters worse, he was unsure if he should abandon his current life and go back to the old one, or to continue living the fictitious life that he assumed for the past 20 years. So with his mind in confusion and suddenly suffering from very severe headaches, Bob decided to seek medical help. With the help of a psychoanalyst, he was able to piece together additional details of his life. In particular, he remembered the address of his parents' home in McCownville, New York. Coincidentally, I used to live in McCownville, New York, but I know very, very few people that even know that it exists. That's because both SUNY Albany and the largest mall in the region, Crossgates, are partially in McCownville. It's just one of those places that's so built up today that you drive through it without ever knowing you've been there. You know, you kind of blink and you miss it. I'm diverging from the story, so let's get back to it. Finally, after 20 years, Bob Sheridan decided it was time to head back east and confront his past. Upon arrival at his parents' house at 19 Berkwood Avenue, he found out that they no longer lived there. In fact, he suspected that after so much time, they may no longer even be alive. So he turned to the phone book and could find the name of just one person that he recognized, that of an uncle. Bob made the call, and he learned that his sister Marjorie was living in Syracuse, New York. So he drove out to see her, and together they drove to Baltimore to see their brother John. The last leg of his reunion took him to Largo, Florida to see his sister Lillian, and ultimately to his parents, who had retired to nearby Indian Rocks Beach 11 years earlier. Sadly, he learned that they were in very poor health. And that's when he really found out about his past. You see, Bob had joined the Navy at age 17, and he served in the Atlantic before being a part of five Pacific War campaigns. As a result of the fighting, he suffered a severe mental breakdown and he was sent to St. Albans Naval Hospital in Queens, New York. When the war ended, so did his care. Against his father's pleas that Bob had not recovered, the Navy released him anyway and he headed to San Francisco to report for duty. He never arrived. After an article appeared in the Family Weekly on February 27th of 1966, Bob received a phone call from a woman who claimed to be the girlfriend of the man who had beaten him. Quote, she said he had robbed me and thought he had killed me and wondered if I was going to press charges. That's the end of the quote. She added that Bob had wrestled the gun away from her boyfriend. And what this meant was that Bob could now be at ease knowing that he had never, ever shot anyone with that weapon. Bob did eventually marry and his parents passed on, so the couple left Florida and moved back to California. Sadly, Robert Sheridan died in Medford, Oregon on November 18th of 1994 at the age of 68 years, 11 months, and 4 days. Other than the bits and pieces he learned from others, he never did remember his childhood, teenage years, or the war that he fought in. It was a life forgotten. Useless, useful, I'll leave you to decide.
0: Ladies thrill at the new loveliness of your complexion, the radiant, tingling feeling that is yours after a facial with Hopper White Clay Pack. See for yourself how amazing Hopper White Clay cleans pore openings, helps tighten tired lines in your face, and loosens blackheads, which can then be easily removed. Get easy-to-use Hopper White Clay Pack today. It costs only a few cents. You'll look better, feel better after the first application.
1: That commercial for Hopper's White Clay Pack is from the September 23, 1949 episode of The Romance of Helen Trent. That was a soap opera that ran on the CBS network from 1933 to 1960, get this, for a total of 7,222 episodes. Now the Hopper in Hopper's White Clay Pack refers to actress Edna Wallace Hopper, and how she came to be associated with a line of cosmetics is a story in itself but I'll try to keep it brief. Oddly, it all starts with gelatin. You see, two brothers, Fred and Otto Glidden, had worked for Jell-O in Leroy, New York, and they decided in 1922 to head to Waukesha, Wisconsin to sell their own version of the product. They named it Jiffy Gel, and they made a small fortune off of it. But then, when Prohibition went into effect in January of 1919, they were faced with a big problem. That's because Jiffy Gel used alcohol as a preserving agent, and they were forced to find a replacement. Not only did they come up with a new formulation, but they also sold the company for big bucks. Now flush in cash, the brothers, one who was a chemist, decided to enter the cosmetics industry. But they needed a face, a famous older woman who looked younger than her years. You know, someone to demonstrate the rejuvenating powers of their products. Well, they didn't have to look far. That's because in 1922, a 40-something, somewhat washed-up actress of the stage and silver screen, whose name was Edna Wallace Hopper, she just happened to have gotten a facelift, which was relatively new for 1922, and believe it or not, she was not keeping it a secret. For several Sundays in a row, her self-penned story of the experience and its virtues appeared in newspapers across the country. Just about everybody knew about this. Edna claimed that she looked like a girl in her teens and that the surgery was, quote, a scientific restoration of external charms. And that, quote, schoolboys try to flirt with her on the street. Yeah, I'm thinking, you're right. Have you seen the stretch out faces of so many of our Hollywood stars lately? I just don't think that many schoolboys are interested in any of them. I think she's fooling herself. Anyway, the next thing you know, she's the face of the Glidden Brothers' new cosmetic line. Marketed as Edna Wallace Hopper Cosmetics, the product line had one of the biggest advertising budgets in the country in the 1930s and the 1940s. Nearly all of the ads claimed that Edna had retained her youthful beauty due to the use of her products. And from what I can tell, most were secret formulas that she obtained while she was on trips to France. And believe it or not, if you purchased them, these products would do the same for you. Of course, they never did mention that her youthful beauty was really the result of modern plastic surgery. After the 1940s, sales of the product line waned, and Edna switched careers to become, get this, a successful stockbroker. She died in 1959 at the age of 85, and I'm guessing that's without a wrinkle on her face. In other news, on August 31st of 1937, it was revealed in the press that the U.S. Postal Service had been purchasing cat food for a great number of felines. It seems years earlier, an unnamed postmaster asked what to do about the rat and mouse problem in his post office. Word came back from the head honcho's office in Washington to get a cat. Soon, other post offices around the country were doing the same. But cats required cat food and there was no line item for it in the budget, so they were told to take the money out of miscellaneous funds. The article points out that only first and second class post offices were authorized to do so, of which there were 4,540 of them in 1937. Now assuming half of them had cats, the postal system was buying food for an estimated 2,270 cats at the time. I really like this next story from February 10th of 1956, which shows just how wrong a well-thought-out plan can go. You see, on this date, 52-year-old Herman Maxey decided to rob the Citizens Deposit Bank in Arlington, Kentucky. First, he thought that the bank closed an hour earlier than it really did. While the robbery was taking place, the bank doors were locked. Then a customer arrived and tried to get inside, but couldn't, So she realized something odd was going on inside and called the police. When Maxie tried to leave with the loot, he found that a mob had gathered outside the bank. So then he switched to plan B. He forced Mrs. Gay Watts to exit the bank in front of him. But as soon as she got through the back door, she just took off without him. Next, he made Mrs. Marie Brashears carry the $55,000 in loot but this time he was smart. He wrapped his arm around her waist so she wouldn't go anywhere. He waved his loaded gun at the crowd as he exited, but he was then slugged by an unseen pool room worker who was named Grady Adams. Mrs. Beshears ran off with the loot, and Maxie was arrested. Police examined his gun and determined it would have never fired. That's because he loaded it with the wrong size bullets. Also, they were unable to start his getaway car, and therefore they had to tow it from the scene. At trial, Maxie claimed that he blacked out after entering the bank, but he was ruled sane and sentenced to 15 years in prison. And I hope you find this next story as amusing as I did. It's dated October 15th of 1963 and deals with the House of Representatives overturning a law of critical national importance. It has to be really, really important, right, for them to deal with it? Believe it or not, for 42 years prior, it had been illegal to sell ice cream in cones, sandwiches, and cups anywhere within our nation's capital. That means that some of our most trusted citizens are in direct violation of this law. That includes teachers, church groups, small businesses, and small children. Throw them all in jail. At the time, it was a misdemeanor to keep or serve ice cream in anything but the authorized units. Those were one half pint, a pint, quart, half gallon, gallon, two gallons, two and one half gallons, and any multiple of the gallon. Anything else was not allowed. So you're probably wondering why they'd have such an absurd law. Well, it wasn't absurd when President Woodrow Wilson signed it into law on March 3rd of 1921. You see, back then, modern refrigeration was rare, so it was not considered possible to package small quantities of ice cream without it spoiling. In other words, this law was put into place to protect the consumer.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of the Useless Information Podcast. I do hope that you enjoyed it. For those of you wondering where I've been for the last month, month and a half, I'm way overdue for putting out a new episode. Basically, I've been sick. Not really sick, but just, you know, kind of sick with a bad cough. It's one of the hazards of being a high school teacher. I bet if you check back through the podcast since I started, you know, five, six years ago, every September or October, I've been sick with a cold. It's just one of the hazards of the job, as I said. Anyway, additional true stories just like the one you heard can be found on my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and of course in the two books that are written by me, C. Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. You can like the show on Facebook. Just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast, and it should pop up. Also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. You can do it for free through iTunes or just about any other podcasting software. Lastly, if you've never done so, please be sure to write some positive comments on the show page on iTunes. Supposedly, I'm not sure of this, but supposedly a lot of positive activity in the comments section of iTunes helps move the show up through their rankings, and of course that brings in more listeners. Anyway, thanks for your patience, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye! As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge.